0: This is african news tonight on the voice of america
1: hello welcome to voa africa thank you for joining us i'm peter clotti and here's what's coming up so basically the ball and i saw people you know trying to jump over you know the barricade trying to jump over into the main itself people throwing bottle water and all of those stuff that was Kelvin Sunday, who witnessed last night's riot after Nigeria failed to qualify for the World Cup and angry fans stormed the pitch. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Tunisia state-run TV says President Kais Saeed dissolved Parliament yesterday, eight months after suspending it. In a televised address, he described an online meeting by some deputies as an attempted coup and said he was acting to preserve the state and preserve its institutions. The latest blow to the North African country's young democracy came after U.S. under Secretary of State for Democracy and Human Rights, Uzra Zeya, concluded a four-day visit to Tunisia. She underscored the importance of strengthening democracy and implementing an inclusive political and economic reform. Radwan Masmoudi, President of Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi the U.S. message to the Tunisian
2: president. I think this visit by the undersecretary was very timely to make it clear to the Tunisian government that uh, the United States government does not accept the illegal and unconstitutional coup that was organized by President Kais Saied on July 25. I think in the beginning, people had the hopes that Kais uh, Saied will respect the constitution, will make some changes, but within the constitution and by respecting the laws, and the Constitution of Tunisia. However, in the last eight months, he has made it very clear that he has no intention of respecting the Constitution and that he intends, in fact, to write a new Constitution by a committee that he wants to appoint. And I think the U.S. Congress has made it clear that it opposes giving any assistance to Tunisia, whether military or economic, until Tunisia resumes its democratic process. And that includes a opening the parliament and allowing all the democratic institutions to resume their normal work according to the laws and the constitution of Tunisia.
3: Over the course of her visit, Undersecretary Zia met with senior government officials in Tunisia and in her meetings, the Undersecretary underscored U.S. concern for Tunisia's democratic trajectory and the importance of inclusive political and economic reforms that give civil society a strong voice. With that pressure the Tunisian president to change his course?
2: I think that there is mounting pressure from the United States, but not only from the United States, from the international community as a whole and from all the democratic nations of the world on President Kais Saïd to go back to respecting the laws and the constitution of Tunisia. And I think that Kais Saied now has no choice either to back down and to go back to respecting the constitution or that he he will find himself increasingly isolated inside Tunisia itself, where there is mounting opposition to the coup and to Qais Said, and outside of Tunisia from the international community. And Tunisia today finds itself in a very bad economic situation where it desperately needs economic assistance from the International Monetary Fund, from the World Bank, and from major international donors. And now the international community has made it clear that That assistance to Tunisia is in fact conditional upon return to democracy and the restoration of all democratic institutions.
3: Undersecretary Zia also called for an independent judiciary as key to a strong and healthy democracy and urged the government to cease trying civilians in military courts and prosecution of individuals for peaceful freedom of expression. Could such a message contribute to a change in the Tunisian government? government statement of opposition figures?
2: Yes, I think so, because this is the first time that we hear such a clear message from the Biden administration opposing the steps taken by Qais Ayyid to undermine democracy. These three or four steps that were mentioned specifically by uh, Undersecretary Zia are very clear violations of the democratic principle, because Qais al wants to control not only the executive branch, but also wants to control the legislative branch. Branch and the judicial branch. And I think now this is the first time that we hear such a clear statement from the U.S. administration opposing these measures and demanding that these measures be undone and that uh, the uh, judicial system be free and independent of any interference from the executive branch and also an end and using military courts against civilians and against opposition members for simple crimes such as. As expressing opposition to the coup. So now people are being tried in military courts because they criticize the president. And of course, this is totally unacceptable.
1: That was Radwan Masmoudi, president of Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. Nigerian football authorities have refuted a report that a Zambian Confederation of African Football, or CAF, official died of injuries sustained during a riot that took place during Tuesday's World Cup qualifier between Ghana and Nigeria. Violence erupted in the stadium after Nigeria failed to qualify for the World Cup and angry fans stormed the pitch. As Timothy Obiezo reports from Abuja, the cause of the football official's death is under investigation. The Nigerian Football Federation
0: confirmed the death of the Zambian calf official, Joseph Kabungo, in a statement Tuesday. But it said Nigerian newspaper reports that Kabungo died of injuries sustained from a beating and stampede are false. NFF General Secretary Mohamed Sanusi said Kabungo was found gasping for air near a locker room as officials were testing players for illegal doping. He said the official was taken to a hospital but died soon afterward. NFF did not respond to VOA's calls for further comment, but the Football Federation of Zambia had earlier suggested that the medical doctor died of possible cardiac arrest. Nigeria's Super Eagles Tuesday crashed out of the 2022 FIFA World Cup slated for November this year after losing to the Ghanaian team in Abuja angry nigerian fans invaded the pitch and vandalized facilities while thousands scrambled to leave the stadium eyewitness Kelvin sunday described the incident as chaotic
4: so he basically the ball and i saw people you know trying to jump over
3: you know, the barricade trying to jump over into the main itself. People throwing bottle water and all of those stuff.
0: Some observers like Busaya Tosin say Nigeria losing the game was not the only trigger for the violence.
5: Two days ago, there was an attack at the airport.
2: Yesterday, another attack. Over now around, some of these people have been attacked. It's
5: supposed to be a moment of consolidation for Nigerians. But with this result, well, our tragedy continues.
0: Sports experts and analysts say Nigeria could face serious sanctions for Tuesdays on sportsmanlike behavior in a possible ban. Daniel Aderia is a sports journalist and analyst at Nigeria's national television authority.
2: While FIFA has not come out to say anything officially, they will definitely take a stand. One thing is certain for sure, the fans will be banned following the whole violence. Aside that,
0: there will be fines, you know, will be fined heavily, as much as $60,000 to $100,000. The 60,000-seat Moshe Dabiola Stadium was packed to overcapacity on Tuesday. By one estimate, there were 100,000 people. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria.
1: At least seven people drowned in central Nigeria when their canoe capsized while they were fleeing raids by criminal gangs. An emergency services official said the passengers were fleeing villages in Munya district yesterday when their overloaded boat sank in the Gunizumba River. Several people are reported to have been injured or are missing. Northwest and Central Nigeria are a hub of heavily armed criminal gangs who raid villages, killing and abducting residents. Meanwhile, the medical charity Doctors Without Borders, known as MSF, said five employees who were kidnapped more than a month ago in northern Cameroon had been released in Nigeria. MSF told the French news agency AFP that the five who were seized on February 24 at Fotokol, a border area that frequently suffers jihadist attacks, have been taken to a safe place but gave no details. Two of the workers were Cameroonian security guards, and the other three were from Chad, Senegal, and Cote d'Ivoire. Amnesty International says Libyan authorities must order an end to the persecution of youths by militiamen and security agents under the guise of protecting Libyan and Islamic values and uphold their right to freedom of expression. That demand came after the publication of alarming videos in which detainees confessed under apparent duress to spreading contempt for Islam and to communicating with foreign organizations, including Amnesty International. Reporter Angie Omar spoke with Hussein Bayoumi, Egypt and Libya researcher at Amnesty International, about the video that prompted the group to respond.
6: So the first uh, video that uh, prompted us uh, to respond has been on video shared by the internal security agency on the Facebook on um, the 21st of December 2021 and basically It showed a person, you know, quote-unquote, admitting to spreading atheism in Libya and so on. And what what happened is that following this video, we started to see more and more videos, one of which a young man saying that he was communicating with me and apparently this was presented to the public in Libya as a matter of spreading atheism and again quoting the ISA calling for the absolute freedom for women, apparently a crime in Libya.
7: Amnesty International statement said the internal security agency's release of video confessions is a flagrant violation of fair trial rights, including the right not to self-incriminate. This unlawful and reckless move has incited hatred against a group of Libyans daring to peacefully express their views. Can you elaborate?
6: The internal security agency we doing is that they were coercing people to confess, to, again, quote-unquote crimes, because these are not crimes as recognized by international law, to doing uh, these acts based now, they have forced them to do that without the presence of a lawyer, uh, where they were in a condition amounting to uh, forced disappearance, as they were not in communication with anyone on the outside world. And therefore, this was an attempt to undermine the right to fair trial. By getting these confessions and by putting them publicly, so to further discredit them to the public now, it's imperative under any legal system that the prosecution and the authorities should completely disregard any confessions that were given under duress, as in this case.
7: When you ask the Libyan authorities to protect activists and ensure that both national and international organizations are able to work freely and without fear of reprisals and to stop the ISA's infectious campaign against people who peacefully exercise their human rights. Now, Libya has two rival prime ministers. Which one is your call directed at?
6: Our call is directed to the Libyan authorities and those in effective control over uh, these bodies. And so by law, this uh, the Internet Security Agency is, is subject to the oversight of the prime Minister office. Now, regardless of the, who that person is, this is beyond the remit of Amnesty International. Our call is directed to the person who actually exercised that effective control and our call is very clear is that they should first uh, instruct them to halt uh, this campaign uh, ensure that those detained are released and uh, open investigation into the abuses committed by the internal security agency and doing so suspending its
1: uh, leader not uh, pending uh, investigation that was hussein bayoumi egypt and libya researcher at amnesty international speaking with reporter Angie omar you are listening to African news tonight I'm Peter Klote in Washington. Ethiopia's federal authorities and rebels in the Tigraya region are accusing each other of blocking aid deliveries to Tigraya that had been agreed to a week ago. The ongoing fighting comes as the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia visited the Afar region where the aid trucks have been held up. Gelmo Dawid reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Days after announcing a humanitarian
8: truce, the Ethiopian government accused the Tigray people's liberation front of blocking trucks carrying critical food aid to Tigray. More than 40 trucks were due to depart this week from Semera, capital of Afar region. But a government statement says the trucks have not slept because Abala Road is closed to traffic by TPLF forces. In its own statement, the TPLF said nothing about the trucks but said the government is not committed to implementing the truce it announced, mainly the delivery of humanitarian aid to Tigray. Writing on Twitter, Kendi a member of the Tigray regional government accused the TPLF authorities in Addis Ababa of deception and criticized the international community for welcoming the truce without ensuring the government would follow through. Speaking on TPS media, Tachoreda, the head of external affairs for Tigray regional government, said, Tens of thousands of people in Tigray are on brink of starvation. He said the region's population needs urgent unfettered access to food aid. Meanwhile, Tracy Jacobson, the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia, visited the Afar region on Thursday. The ambassador met with Afar regional president, Awal Arba, and community members to discuss fighting, which has spilled over from Tigray into Afar. According to the U.S. embassy in Addis Ababa, Jacobson pledged continued support from the U.S. to order the region's recovery, including direct humanitarian aid for those displaced by the conflict. It said that in 2022 alone, the U.S. committed more than $90 million for development of the region and urgent humanitarian aid. Gilmo for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
1: U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up a three-nation tour of the Middle East and North Africa with an appeal for Algeria to limit its ties to Russia and look to improve relations with neighboring Morocco. After meeting with top Algerian officials on Wednesday, Blinken said... The Ukraine conflict should cause all countries to reevaluate relations with Russia and express support for the territorial integrity of other states. Algeria is locked in a bitter dispute with Morocco over the status of the former Spanish colony of Western Sahara. It opposes a Moroccan plan to retain control of the territory while granting it semi-autonomous status. The United States has praised the plan as serious, realistic and credible but has not explicitly endorsed it as the path to a resolution. Hackers have launched a successful cyber attack on one of South Africa's biggest credit bureaus, obtaining personal details of almost every one of the country's 60 million citizens. Cyber security experts say criminals could use their information, which includes ID and passport numbers, to defraud people. The hackers are also threatening to release what they call embarrassing details about prominent South Africans, including
5: politicians and celebrities. Darren Taylor reports. The South African branch of the Global TransUnion Credit Bureau says a group of hackers, apparently based in Brazil, gained access to its server last week.
9: They are called Naughty Sec. They communicated with us. They obviously detected our skepticism, and so they have been providing samples of the data that they've stolen to try and prove that it is indeed them.
5: Jan Vermeulen is editor of the My Broadband Technology website. He says the hackers emailed him a few days ago to explain their audacious attack.
9: When they probed the TransUnion network, these attackers said that they found that there was a user account that had a very poor password. In fact, the password was password. That gave them entry into the file server and that allowed them to download over 4 terabytes of TransUnion's data, according to these attackers, that includes a Department of Home Affairs database of 54 million South Africans. So basically, everyone
5: with an ID number in South Africa. The TransUnion server held credit information from banks, insurance firms, cellular phone firms, among others. vermilion says the information is now most definitely in the wrong hands. He adds that the criminal's threat to expose sensitive details about the financial affairs of well-known South Africans followed TransUnion's refusal to pay a ransom.
9: They are demanding 15 million U.S. dollars payable in cryptocurrency, with TransUnion refusing to pay the ransom or extortion demand. They are now trying to get attention on the case by threatening senior political leaders in South Africa. That includes President Cyril Ramaphosa,
5: Julius Malema. Um, South Africa's uh, information uh, regulator is also demanding TransUnion explain how hackers managed to steal personal details of millions of citizens. Information that was supposed to be ultra-secure with apparent ease. If after an investigation it is found that TransUnion was negligent, then they
9: could face a 10 million rand fine or even criminal prosecution.
5: Details now in the hands of criminals include private citizens' phone numbers, email and physical addresses, marital status, names of employers and banks, and vehicle finance contract numbers. TransUnion acknowledges Criminals could use personal information to trick victims into disclosing confidential banking details, potentially allowing crime groups to plunder their accounts. Vermeulen warns it will be difficult to prove that someone's bank account was fraudulently accessed directly as a result of the data leak at TransUnion. The recourse for
9: consumers, unfortunately, must come from the information regulator. The information regulator must hold institutions to account that recklessly handle people's
5: personal information. He says in an increasingly connected world, there's no such thing as personal information anymore. The steps that consumers can take to protect themselves, ironically, is through things like
9: credit bureaus, Where you can subscribe to services that will let you know if someone tries to apply for credit in your name fraudulently. The other thing to do is just to be extremely cautious. If somebody contacts you and they've got your ID number, don't assume that they're legitimate because your ID number is basically available
5: for anyone on the internet now. Technology experts have been warning for years that both South Africa's public and private sectors haven't been taking cybersecurity seriously enough and that their systems are easy to hack into. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. South
1: African President Cyril Ramaphosa and his entire cabinet last night survived two motions of no confidence filed against them by two political parties. The African Transformation Movement Party wanted Ramaphosa out of office, alleging wrongdoing in the way he raised funds for his campaign to become president of the ruling African National Congress in 2017. On the other hand, the Democratic Alliance Party wanted the entire cabinet to go for failing to execute their constitutional duties in their portfolios. Thuso Komalo reports from Johannesburg. The vote of no confidence against
4: President Ramaphosa was scheduled to be the first to be tabled and debated in parliament. However, when he was given the chance to table the motion, the African Transformation Movement member of parliament, Vio asked for the motion to be postponed until the court ruled on their application to have a secret
8: ballot on the motion. There is conflict or disagreement between us as a party and you as a speaker on the method of voting, and that is before the courts. We can't proceed in this motion and vote, whereas the method of voting, it is still subject to judicial review.
4: While other parties supported the postponement of the motion, Others, like Ahmed Munzo Sheikh Imam, from the National Freedom Party, objected.
3: This matter was struck off the roll. So it does not exist as a matter or an application currently. Now, based on that uh, honorable speaker, it simply means that ATM is not willing to move it today.
4: After a heated debate, the speaker ruled to postpone the motion. Democratic Alliance party leader John Stan Hessen tabled the motion against the entire cabinet.
9: This cabinet has failed to make South Africa a viable place in which to operate a business and to employ people.
4: The motion was resoundingly supported by opposition parties during the debate. They accused the cabinet of being corrupt and failing to protect the masses from poverty, inequality and unemployment. However, the ruling African National Congress Deputy Chief Whip Doris Klakute objected, accusing the Democratic Alliance of attempting to bring back apartheid rule. The architects and proponents of South Africa's poverty and inequality are waging a concerted onslaught against our leaders in an effort to keep intact old patterns of social, political, and economic power. Finally, it was time to vote and Deputy Speaker Lechesa Tanoli announced the results.
8: The outcome is as follows. There's one abstention, 131 yes and 231 no. The motion is therefore not agreed to.
4: Ramaphosa is seeking a second term when his first five years end in 2024. However, the division within his ruling party has made his path a bumpy one although in Parliament it seems he still commands the majority vote. Tuso for VOA News, Johannesburg.
1: And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America.